the reputation of businesses now is formed in direct conversation with the public. It's toing and froing. You don't own that reputation in the way that you once did. Welcome to Why Everybody Hates You, an audio support group for reputation professionals. If you have any responsibility for how people talk, think and feel about your organisation, then you are in the right place. My name is Daisy Powell Chandler, and today I'm speaking to James Frayne, campaign strategist and author of Meet the People, about why businesses can run and they can hide, but politics is coming to get them. Hi, James. Thank you so much for joining me today. Why does everybody hate you? It's an interesting question. I think I've been involved in a number of quite high-profile political battles over the course of the last several years. You know, I'm thinking back to, you know, the time when I was Director of Comms at the Department for Education and I was trying to push through uh, academies and free schools uh, reforms at that point, which obviously was not to everybody's taste. Uh, And I've done various campaigns down the years, which have been, I think, probably very well supported by mass of the public if you like but which have invited the uh, ire of um, of political opponents I suppose so I seem to have been drawn into those battles quite a lot down the years. Oh that divisiveness sounds interesting but stressful. It's I never found it so honestly I mean in that you know, I always I always worked on campaigns which I believed in. I was never really a sort of gun for hire from that perspective. And even now, you know, in the in in my professional life, in the corporate life, I I wouldn't work on campaigns or I wouldn't work with clients which I didn't have sympathy and respect for. Um, so I've never found it stressful, given that I've always thought I was on the right side. And you know, there is obviously the fact that you just simply get used to being in battle a lot when you've been, when you've been working in such campaigns over, over a long period of time. And it it sort of becomes what you do. And what's your favorite campaign during that time being, what's been the, the glorious battle that you hark back to? I think the political campaign I enjoyed most of all in recent times actually was working with uh, the new schools network ahead of their launch in, uh, 2009 this was the head of the introduction of free schools and the sort of ramping up of the uh, academy process uh, ahead of the you know when the conservatives took over in 2010 and that was so fascinating because you had you know really important political issue and one that the public cared about a great deal but also one which attracted enormous Um, political controversy you know the unions were very opposed to it the Labour Party became very opposed to it and it became one of the sort of central battles I suppose of politics of of that that period Um, so I so I was involved in that and then obviously carried on the selling of free schools and academies uh, when I went into government in 2011 as a civil servant working for the Department for Education and Whilst actually I've always been pretty apolitical from a sort of party perspective, I've never been sort of neutral on issues, and I suppose on ideology, I suppose. Um, And therefore, 
you know, I really wanted to be involved in in the selling of free schools and academies. I believed in them uh, and I was really pleased to be working on it in government as well. And that isn't that the, also how you met your wife? It is. It is. And so I guess it's the, the ultimate metric of, uh, of, uh, of a successful campaign. I suppose. <laughs> yes. Number of relationships formed on the campaign trail, as it were. So that was your favourite political campaign, but you sounded like it may not be your favourite campaign of all time. I think it probably was, but there are, I've never been one of those people that found it hard to leave the sort of political environment again, partly because I've never been terribly political. You know, I've always been sort of quite ideological, but not terribly political. Uh, And therefore I always found uh, campaigns in a corporate setting just as interesting. So, you know, I remember at a, at a previous agency, for example, working to get a supermarket built in a very working class area where the sort of, I suppose, to slightly use a, a bit of a sort of stereotype, if you like, there was a lot of sort of second homers, wealthy second homers from London that had gone to retire to this particular area. And there's a lot of sort of very affluent people that spent a lot of time there that didn't want the idea of this down market supermarket polluting their their town if you like and you know mobilizing working class people who were desperate for cheaper food and cheaper groceries generally into a political campaign was was really really interesting and very satisfying and again you know this takes me back to my point at the start about i suppose engaging in controversial issues that to me was an entirely mainstream issue where you had majority support and overwhelming support from working class low middle class people locally but you had you know a a minority of people but they were very uh you know they were very powerful locally that 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 didn't want this to happen i suppose i've always been attracted by those causes but there's a lot of organizations for which that controversy that divisiveness is exactly why they try to steer clear of political issues isn't it is that actually possible in this day and age it was it was i think and even going back i mean five years is a push but certainly 10 years i think it it was definitely possible You you could be let's say an energy company that did oil exploration in some far flung country and you were a big company, but you had a very low profile. You weren't Shell or BP. Um, you didn't attract the the attention of the sort of mega NGOs. And you just got on with doing your exploration, selling your product, giving a nice dividend to, to your um, to your shareholders. Uh, and that's probably true of you know people like mining companies. Um, some of the big property companies and these sorts of things. They were massive, but they had no public profile and therefore there was very little scrutiny. In that situation, you can define your reputation in the classic way. You can do some top-down marketing. You can do some elite corp comms via the FT or the Wall Street Journal. You can do a little back, you can do a little bit of background public affairs. But fundamentally, you can keep your head down and, and get the job done. That is just not viable anymore. Um, you know, even those, uh, even those companies that want to just keep their head down and, and have been relatively low profile, uh, 
being dragged into these political battles. So to sort of slightly uh, sort of misquote Trotsky, you know, you might not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. There is no hiding place anymore for any business because there is just so much more scrutiny now from little local campaigns, smaller NGOs, activist groups of all sorts that can drag you in for a million different reasons. So every business now has its reputation defined in part, and that part is growing fast, uh, by politics. And that growth of those small activist campaigns, what has fueled that? It's unquestionably the internet, unquestionably, in that you can now form these uh mini campaigns that you can you know you can link up with people right across the world at basically no notice to put together these campaigns clearly uh that has changed the game substantially i'm I'm hardly the first person to say that um but there has also been i think a a shift generally in the views particularly amongst amongst younger voters about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable anymore and you know businesses are increasingly being dragged in as i say to these political campaigns that previously uh previously didn't really affect them so you know they're being dragged into uh into fights over things like climate change or treatment of suppliers diversity i.e things like women on boards a uh, number of minorities that are part of their graduate program and these sorts of things so right across the board, there are these social uh, campaigns which are, which are just exploding and, and dragging businesses in. Do you think that the skew towards younger people that we see on, on social media and, and those kinds of um, global social media campaigns means that companies that do engage in these debates will necessarily be skewed much more towards what I think we might somewhat glibly call the woke agenda is it always going to be a slightly left-leaning social agenda that they get pulled into or is it a broader spectrum than that it's an interesting that that's one of the most interesting questions of all really which you know which is which are the issues that businesses ought to take most seriously and there's no question that the the issues that come onto the agenda most of all at the moment are ones which are pushed, uh, I suppose, from a more left-leaning perspective. I think for a few reasons, partly, as you say, uh, the internet generally sort of foregrounds younger people and therefore the political interests that younger people have are are pushed perhaps more than uh, we might have seen previously. Uh, But secondly, you know, it's certainly in my experience, left-leaning people and and, and middle-class people more generally actually are much, much, much more political than right-leaning people and uh, working-class and lower-middle-class consumers. I mean, it's just they are much more politically aware. They self-define by politics in a way that other groups don't. And therefore, the, the campaigns that come to the fore are often those that you might say lean left. Not, not, not entirely. I mean, you could say, I mean, honestly, I think that concern about climate change is shared across the political spectrum. It, the, the campaigns tend to come from the left, but the but the the interest is shared across the political spectrum. I think the same is is true about a lot of the diversity campaigns, where they would have very serious 
widespread public support, but nonetheless, the frontline activists would lean left. And it's down to businesses, I think, to to ultimately work out whether or not uh, their their customers and their prospective customers are aligned ultimately with the with the activists that are pushing particular campaigns, and that's that really is the key question that they need to ask themselves. So companies are faced with not just having to respond to the political issues of the day, understand what the internal impact of those issues is, communicate that concern outwardly and explain how they're acting upon it, but also engage much more with the audiences in order to understand their real concerns. Yes, I think, you know, businesses have to ask themselves, you know, the, the, the big question, which is, does any of this matter? You know, if they're being attacked... Does this matter from a from a commercial perspective? So you know there'll be some there'll be some campaigns which are a bit niche, or i.e. they're not pushed by terribly many people. They are not really seen as that being that being that important anyway. And you need to work out whether or not they're therefore it's damaging you or not. But secondly, conversely, are there political campaigns which are only touching you as an organization tangentially which might not be terribly high profile online but actually which the vast bulk of your customers and prospective customers do care about it's not just the subject matter though is it one of the things i particularly liked about your book is that it talks about the operational side of communications and how much businesses can learn from political campaigns about dealing with this new state of affairs where everything is political can you tell me a bit more about that? Well, I think one of the one of the problems of the sort of traditional structure of the communications teams in, in many, particularly large businesses, is they tend to be very highly siloed. So you would have typically a very large marketing team with a very large budget, which tends ultimately to push. Um, advertising around products, you know, some CSR, but it tends to be mostly not terribly political. Uh, it tends to be sort of very top down. You are trying to shape your reputation. You launch some advertising and marketing to do that. That's not to disparage it by putting it that way, but that's just that's how it is, I think. Secondly, you'd have a corp comms team that would handle the sort of pointed but polite uh, comments and questions from the FT and the Wall Street Journal, say, and then thirdly, you would have a public affairs team that sought to monitor ongoing political and regulatory change and which may seek to push back somehow, either directly through, through or through a trade association. You know, that was, I think, fine when organisations weren't being dragged into these very political fights. But when your reputation is increasingly being formed by what people are saying about your stance on political issues or on your uh, on your sort of behavior and values i don't think that model holds anymore because you need you ultimately need to focus much more on engaging in this two-way conversation with the public and when your communications team is very siloed as as many are it makes it very difficult to organize full-scale broad pushback of the type that is now required and again, I think you also have a problem, which is 
certainly in the marketing teams, and you'll see this happening all the time on uh, online, is that they are not generally staffed by people that understand political combat. So, for example, we saw last week the cop getting dragged into a row around press freedom because you've got people effectively making corporate statements about the organization's stance on really important things with what looked like not a great deal of sort of high level authority to actually say those things. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really important that businesses actually take the politics much more seriously, that they engage in this, this sort of toing and froing with the public in a way that they haven't in the past on political issues. And therefore, ultimately, that you have a team which is entirely integrated, but ultimately led by somebody that understands uh, how to communicate with the public on these sensitive issues. It It is hard, though, isn't it, when you've got social media managers who are having to deal with the, the day-to-day realities of uh, simple customer interactions online and at the same time be ready for that level of emotional intensity, which now seems to be acceptable on Twitter every day, where people are suddenly incredibly outraged about something. And it strikes me that is something that is very different about stepping into this more political world. This is brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And as you say, you can have uh, people that previously were expected to just answer some basic questions about why a product had had been sent to a, a customer, it was damaged, why a train had been delayed, these sorts of things. All of a sudden, that same team is dealing with the most controversial and and high profile and sensitive subjects that you can possibly imagine and not unreasonably again i'm not implying any sort of particular criticism for people finding this difficult but that is just a completely different ball game and therefore you know inevitably the structure and the skill set of communications teams is going to have to change very rapidly to deal with that Do you think in a funny way, this really means the death of crisis comms? You know, if we're always in crisis comms mode, if we always have to be ready for that naught to 100 outrage, if we always have to be ready to do battle, does that mean that crisis comms as a discipline is dead because we're going to be doing it all the time? It's an interesting question, uh, which I confess I hadn't thought about in, in the way that you had put it. And so you did put it like that. But I think, yes, inevitably, it must be. You know, the idea of you see these you know sort of hollywood films and dramas where and now in come the serious people that are going to come in and solve this problem and they're going to sort of talk their way out of it uh that's clearly not credible anymore in that you can't draw a line under things in quite the way that you would have been able to do in the past because as you say it's 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 ongoing you know there's a sort of i suppose a long tail of outrage if you like to to everything these days and whilst I think the skills of crisis communications are important to get you through a, a over a particular hump, if you like, it is, as you say, a sort of just a, a general ongoing battle where, you know, in, instead of having classic crisis comm specialists, you need people probably that are a bit more focused on, as I said, as I've said before, sort of engaging in political combat. I'm also really interested in how purpose fits in with all of this. Purpose seems to have been the the watchword of corporate communications over the past couple of years, and we're seeing it be talked about more and more. What 
role does purpose play in that new integrated battle-ready communications machine? Well, I think it's it's absolutely integral to everything, really. And I have sort of slightly heretical opinions on purpose uh, to the extent that I, 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 I come across very, very few people that share the same view. Which oh, is now often, now uh, I really want to hear it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's the fact that I think there's often so little purpose behind purpose in that you, you can never pin down a lot of people in this space on what actually they think the point of the whole thing is. So you'll hear people say it's really important for brands to demonstrate purpose because consumers want to understand the values of a company and they want to feel aligned to those values, which I happen to agree with fundamentally. I completely agree with that. But whenever you talk about, and therefore, what should company X or company Y do, it always tends to be something which honestly is quite, and used the phrase before, that was quite sort of woke or quite PC. Now, that is absolutely the right thing to do if you are a company which has a younger, urban, highly socially liberal uh, customer base. It makes complete sense to do that. It therefore made sense for Nike uh, to do what it did recently. It makes sense for, um, what would be another good example? Ben and Jerry's? Uh, ben and Jerry's, yeah. It, would, it might make sense for Ben and Jerry's to do, to do that as well. That's a good example. But if you are somebody with a small C conservative base, which uh, is more suburban, leans older, quite risk averse, then it just simply doesn't make sense to, to, to engage in, in debates around purpose along the same lines. It must have been a couple of years ago now, I had a bit of a disagreement with the CEO of Iceland in that I'd written a piece, I think it was for the Sunday Telegraph or for the Telegraph now, making some of these points. And I said that I thought their campaign on protecting orangutans was laudable which I think it is, genuinely. I mean, I genuinely think it's it's a, a good thing to do. But I thought it didn't really light up their customer base, which was urban, less affluent, and I think probably generally worried about different sorts of issues. And the CEO wrote a blog on the Iceland website, and he'd said that this was snobby of me to have... Um, uh, to have sort of mischaracterized his customers in this way and that it was the right thing to do and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And again, I have some sympathy with the view that it's the right thing to do, I have less sympathy with the idea that the Iceland customers would be, uh, would be primarily interested in uh, an issue like that. Perhaps, you know, I think they might be more interested in, issues around you know security or cost of living or something like that personally um so i just think everybody's just got to be ruthlessly honest about why they're engaging in this debate and i think too many businesses try to have it every which way they'll say to investors and they'll say to the media that this is the right thing to do because you know it's, it's the right thing to do commercially because this is where people want to go but then when you say well hang on a minute surely your people don't really believe in that, then it's, oh no, but this is just the right thing to do full stop. And again, which I, I, I truly think is, is, is a reasonable thing to do, but you've just got to be completely honest about what it is that you're actually trying to achieve with this stuff. 
I love projects like that, finding the sweet spot between where the consumer interest lies, where your commercial interest lies, where you can make the most impact and where your investors will see the benefit. That is definitely my dream project. I love working on those. Now, I think we're, we're drawing to a close now, but I do like to ask for some concrete lessons that listeners can take away and apply, whether it's today or in the next few months, to their own reputation practice. What do you think listeners should be taking away from our talk today? I, th- I suppose there are two cultural lessons that are important. The first is that I think businesses have to accept now that they are in the business of political discussion, if you like, at best, and at worst, in political combat. You know, if you're a firm, if you're a firm in the sort of energy sector or something, you know, you really are going to be taking a lot of heat over the course of the next few years as, as more and more organisations beam in on you. So I think people have to accept, as I say, the need to engage in politics. Secondly, I think organizations have got to be ruthlessly honest with themselves as i said before about the purpose of purpose you know you have to be really really clear about what values you want to project and why you want to project them and if you want to project them simply because it's a moral good that's fine go ahead but you have to be you have to be clear then that you are relegating essentially commercial goals from that and that's fine but you've got to be eyes open on it the other lessons are i think that from a practical perspective communications teams have got to be entirely integrated now and they have to be led by somebody that is able to take a view on a business's reputation and how it's being formed as a whole so it doesn't make sense i think for businesses in the public eye ultimately to be led from a reputation perspective by people that really only understand top-down communications, either top-down marketing or top-down corp comms. It makes no sense because that's that's ultimately not where the challenge lies. Organizations now have to start recruiting and promoting and putting into, you know, essentially putting these people in positions of control that really understand political and social issues and how to engage with them. That's everything from us. A big thank you to my guest, James Frain of Public First. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll join me in two weeks' time for the next one. To make that easier, please do find us at whyeverybodyhatesyou.co.uk and click subscribe on your favourite podcasting app. I would also be really grateful if you would leave us a review if you get the chance, as reviews help new listeners to find the show. Thank you for listening to Why Everybody Hates You. And remember, you are not alone.